0: Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the chance to finish this book and the night we have and the weeks we have to come. It's been an enlightening study, Father. It's been an effort as well. It's been a challenge for us to stay engaged and and to be here consistently, Father, both for myself and anyone else who's been a part of this study. But that is the effort, Father, that we give to your word because we know the rewards of studying it. We understand things of the world and we'll never understand. And we have experienced things, Father, that believers who don't yield to your word will miss and won't realize what they've missed until they are standing before you. And, Father, we ask that the time we have devoted will not be lost on us, that our heart's desire will be to live what we've learned, to do the Word, not just to read it or understand it. And I pray, Father, you would give us the the desire and the courage to reflect on everything we've studied, to take all that you have said in your Word seriously and to be a student, Father, not just of what it says, or of even what it asks, but of who it is of, Father, who it speaks about. That is Christ. And we ask that we would be focused on him as well tonight again. Give us words and and understanding through the Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, back to Exodus. We're studying the dispensation of law, basically. We're studying the, the giving of that covenant to Israel, which brought the law. And through this relationship of law and covenant, God instituted a new regulation for how men could relate to God. It was a fuller revelation than what had been given previously, but yet not the full revelation of Christ. To recap, the earlier manifestations of His grace that God has dispensed throughout the ages, starting with the garden and continuing forward now into the time of the law, all of these earlier manifestations of His grace were serving a similar purpose. They were regulating man's relationship with God while in a sinful state, but none of those previous dispensations, including this one, were intended as a true solution to man's sin. These dispensations of God's grace could not address the fundamental problem that's created by Adam's fall in the garden, which is the power that sin holds over us in our fallen state. They could not remove that sin. They could regulate man's fellowship with God for a time, but only until a greater revelation of God was made available, and that's specifically the revelation that was made available in the dispensation of grace through Christ. So the culmination of God's plan in the redemption of men from sin is in the dispensation of grace, in the arrival of Christ and in His work on the cross. But until that moment, God was at work designing earlier dispensations, each with its purpose, each building toward the revelation of Christ, but yet also each with a certain inadequacy with a certain inadequacy. And because each of these earlier dispensations were not the solution, but were rather a mile marker on the road to the solution, that being Christ, God had to make clear with each new dispensation that they were not the solution, that they were not the final answer. And he did that by always revealing the power of sin and the weakness of men in spite of this new dispensation. So after each new dispensation arrived, The protagonists or the heroes of that dispensation, whoever they might have been, were inevitably shown succumbing to the power of sin in their own lives, demonstrating that the work of God had to be still incomplete. And we went through some of the examples of that, if you remember, last week. When Christ came, though, he changed that pattern. Jesus lived a sinless life. Sin had no power over that protagonist, so to speak. And when he died, he rose again, conquering the penalty of death. So he both conquered it in his life and he conquered it in his death, thus proving that he was the final solution for sin, that his dispensation, that of grace in the Messiah, fully realized God's promises that men could conquer sin through the work of God, through the provision God made in the Messiah. Now, in Exodus, we're studying the dispensation of law. So because it's not Christ and it's something lesser, we must expect that in the course of the story of this dispensation's arrival, there would also have to be that inevitable moment where the dispensation is shown to be incomplete, inadequate. That sin is still reigning in the hearts of men. And that story is the story of Israel at the base of the mountain. That's the account. We're studying the necessary footnote to the arrival of this dispensation. Proving what Paul taught, that the law did not come to produce righteousness. And proving what the writer of Hebrews said, that it is weak and worthless in that regard. So, turning back to our story, chapter 32. Moses has been on the top of the mountain, as we remember now, for 40 days. And while he's up there, as we learned last week, the people grew impatient. What they're impatient about is their desire for filling the needs of the flesh. Eating and sexual immorality. They're deceived by their own flesh, by the sin of the flesh. And so they begin by asking for a new leader to represent them to God because Moses isn't around. What that new leader will do is preside over a sacrificial offering. And as we noted last week, what always follows mass sacrifice is mass feasting on the animals that were killed. And that's what they sought. And so they asked Aaron. Aaron complied. He made the idol that was to represent God and as a result took the place of Moses. And then he built the altar on which they would sacrifice. And then the people celebrated. They had their feast. They had their debauchery. That's where we rejoin the narrative. So now as we do that, I want you also to consider what we said last week concerning how these circumstances mirror the circumstances of the garden. The way God has constructed the entire story of Exodus as a reminder of what has happened already in the garden. Both scenes, if you remember, begin with relationships established through covenants. In both cases, God provided his chosen people with all that they needed, including all the food that they needed. In both cases, he made a prohibition against what they should not want. In both cases, they desired what they couldn't have. Both craved after prohibited things, and in both cases, the thing they craved was food. And as a result, both traded what they had for God's judgment and exile. So let's join Moses still on the mountain with the Lord while the people are below having their fun. And in this moment, the Lord warns Moses what to expect when he returns to the camp. So that's verses 7 through 14. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. He says, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now, then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, "O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you've brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountain and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind from doing harm to your people. Remember, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken. I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. You have to imagine Moses was a bit surprised, to say the least, probably very disturbed when he heard the news about what was going on below after 40 days. Kind of like a parent who hears what's been happening while they've been on vacation. Only worse, I guess, or maybe not worse, depending on your kids. The Lord says that Moses' people have corrupted themselves. Notice the Lord isn't calling Israel his people here. He's calling them Moses' people. And in the way it's written in the Hebrew in chapter 32, verse 7, I want you to notice how similar the language is to something that's famously said back in Genesis chapter 3. Go down once for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? That woman, the one you gave me. Now, in the case of Genesis, that was Adam making pitiful excuse. In the case of God, though, it's him making a different point. But the intent is to draw your mind back to that earlier moment, because as we've already noted, this whole scene, this whole book is really, in some respects, picturing how the events of Genesis transpired in those first chapters. So he calls them Moses' people. He says they have turned aside from the law that they agreed to follow, barely, what, 40 days earlier, 39 days earlier? The law they all agreed they would observe. And Moses hears they've made an idol. They've worshipped it and they've sacrificed to it. How disheartening that must have been for Moses. This moment is all the proof we need to know the powerlessness of the law to produce righteousness. Because think about it. These people have been given the law. They agreed to it and it is fresh on their minds. Furthermore, they had all of those experiences of God's power manifested to them, both in the time of Egypt and in the crossing of the sea, and then at the base of the mountain, they have all of this physical experience of seeing the true power of the living God to back up the law. Finally, they have firsthand evidence of God's presence, even as they sin, even as they were sinning, they could have looked up at any moment and seen the cloud of God resting on the mountain. So they had the law given to them personally barely 40 days earlier. They had a history of seeing God at work, and they had physical presence of God in the moment, and they could not keep the law. Nevertheless, their flesh took them into sin. We've never seen manifestations like that, or if you have, I'd like to talk to you about it. We have never had a chance to live under the cloud of God in the moment in this way, right? How could we expect anyone in our experience today to be sanctified by following a law that Israel couldn't follow for 40 days? It makes no sense. Clearly, the law does not have the power to put an end to sin, much less bring us into righteousness. Well, Scripture tells us it was never intended to do those things because it can't do those things. It has other good purposes in mind, but that's not one of them. So the dispensation of law is clearly not the solution to sin, and it's made clear right away. So let's consider why the Lord chose to share the news that he has given to Moses in this way while they are both still on the mountain. Because after all, he could have waited. Moses would have found out sooner or later he was about to walk down the mountain anyway. But instead, the Lord goes out of his way, you could say, to invite Moses into a conversation right now. First, note already what we've said. The Lord pointedly called Israel Moses' people, not his own. And then in verse 9, the Lord declares that the Jewish people are an obstinate people. The word obstinate literally translates as stiff-necked or the back of the neck. God is saying they are stubborn, stiff-necked. Literally, the term in Hebrew means the back of your neck. The reason he uses that as a description of people who are stubborn is because of the way the neck controls the position or attitude of the head. When you are submitted to authority, your head should be bowed. Your neck bends as opposed to staying straight. But if you are resistant to that authority, then your head would remain upright. In fact, we would do typically the opposite, right? We tend to put our nose up to show our resistance to authority. So the neck that's stiff is one that refuses to bow to God's authority. These people, in other words, have not submitted to God's authority. They are following Moses, yes, But they aren't following the Lord in their hearts, which is why the Lord calls them Moses's people. Secondly, Moses, from his own experience, knows what it means to resist God's will. He saw the effect of that in Egypt, certainly. But he also saw it in his own life when he was leaving Midian and he hadn't circumcised his son. He understands what the penalty is if you resist God's will, if you do not submit to his word. So he knows the Lord is willing to bring judgment for failure to submit to his will. And then finally, Moses realizes because of what he knows about God and about the people that something has to be done here and now or these people will perish. He has to do something on their behalf. He has to act. He is the only one that he knows so far has not submitted to this sin in the camp. As a result, the Lord has drawn Moses into a moment in which Moses can see himself as the hope of Israel. And if he is willing to intercede, The nation can be spared. Now, the key to understanding the scene is to notice the way the Lord says, let me alone so that my anger may destroy the people. That's the key to understanding what God's doing here. The Lord is testing Moses. He's given Moses an opportunity to intercede. And the Lord has said to Moses, I'm prepared to act in judgment over these people. But he is also willing to forego that punishment for the sake of his servant Moses. Moses. Will he intercede? Will he take that role upon his shoulders? And he responds in the expected manner. Instead of leaving God alone, which was the option he could have given, instead he does exactly the opposite. He petitions the Lord to save Israel. He intercedes for Israel as their representative. He makes his appeal based on three arguments. First, Moses appeals to God's love and compassion. He says, these are the people you brought out of Egypt. Moses is implying that the Lord's prior actions, as he drew Israel out of Egypt, cared for them in the desert and all that happened, all of those actions demonstrate his inherent care for these people, his inherent desire for these people. So he cannot reject those he has chosen. Secondly, Moses appeals to the Lord's name and his reputation, which are one and the same. Should the Lord destroy Israel, he says the testimony of Exodus of the whole world, really, of history would be that you led your people out to destroy them. And that would be an entirely different testimony than what we now assign to Exodus. And so instead of the story of the Lord rescuing his people from slavery and it becomes the story of the Lord destroying his people in the desert. Moses says, you can't have that. It would impugn your character. Finally, Moses reminds God of his promises to Abraham. Moses himself was a descendant of Abraham, as was all of Israel. So when the Lord says, I'll restart the nation through you, technically he could have done that. It would have still have been in keeping with the promises God gave to Abraham. But his descendants, Moses' descendants, are not going to be any different than Abraham's descendants. No different than the rest of Israel as it exists today. So why would there be any greater likelihood that Moses' descendants would do any better than the descendants that are already at the base of the mountain. The problem of sin isn't going to come to an end just because he cuts off some and starts again. Instead, being faithful to the line that he started in Abraham and in Isaac and in Jacob would do more to prove God's faithfulness to his promise than if he starts over halfway through, even though that was possible. Moses tries to close the deal in verse 12. He says, God, I want you to change your mind. Then in verse 14, we're told, that God responds by agreeing to change his mind. Or that's what the text says. Some of your Bibles, especially if you have a King James, would say repent. God repented. But repent itself just means to change your mind. That statement, particularly verse 14, commonly causes students a lot of concern since we know there are other scriptures that tell us God never changes his mind. Most famously, 1 Samuel 15, 29 The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. What Samuel says, in a nutshell, is not that God doesn't want to change his mind. He says he is not a man that he should change his mind. In other words, changing your mind is a uniquely human characteristic. The process of changing your mind is to hold one thing to be true in a moment and then to hold a different thing to be true later. And between the now and the later, more information shows up. Or you change as a person. Your feelings or your attitudes, your desires change. Something changes in your environment or in you or in what you know to cause your thinking process to be different in the future than it was in the past. But in order for that possibility to exist for God, something outside God and outside creation would have to come to bear upon him so as to do that change process on him. Give him new information he didn't already have. Make his heart change to think differently than he used to think. To want things differently. But the scriptures say God is immutable. There is nothing that can act on God that he is not already in control of. There is nothing above or outside of God. So there is no such thing as information that God doesn't know. There's no such thing as a feeling or desire that would change from day to day, for there is nothing to act on God to produce that change. So it is not that he doesn't change his mind as a matter of policy. It's that he doesn't change his mind because it's not possible. Whatever he would know in the future, he knows now. There's nothing that's going to happen between now and the future to give him anything more than he already has. So by definition, whatever he does now is always the best thing to do. That's why Samuel says he's not a man, that he should change his mind. So how do we understand what's happening here then? Well, first, remember how this conversation started. The Lord said to Moses, let me alone. And then if Moses complied, the Lord would have cause to destroy Israel. That was a clear invitation for Moses to intervene. It was an invitation for Moses to stop him. That was the reason he was offered it in that way. The Lord expected Moses to intervene, and he did. So clearly, the Lord was not intent on destroying his people, and the testimony of Scripture overall confirms for us that there was never a point in God's plan in which the nation of Israel was ever ceasing to exist. God wanted Moses to assume the role of intercessor, and this was his way to invite it. So the first thing to understand is it was God's intent to set up the possibility in Moses' mind so that then Moses would act on that and do what God needed done. Secondly, students of Genesis should notice, at least my Genesis, should notice a striking similarity between this moment and a moment when God visited Abraham before destroying Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18. In that situation, the Lord came, intending to destroy the wickedness of the cities, but before doing so, came to Abraham and gave him a chance to intercede on behalf of the righteous who were in the city, particularly Lot and his family. What did God do in that situation? He revealed a plan to Abraham in advance. Abraham recognized the threat. He chose to intercede for Lot and his family, hoping to change God's plan concerning their outcome. God agreed to Abraham's request. But Abraham's intercession only served to confirm the very thing God intended to do in the first place with that city, that being destroy the unrighteous and save the righteous. I always like to point out the fact that when that city was eventually destroyed, God sent two angels in the form of human men, in the physical form of men, to take out of that city those who would be found righteous. Those two angels coming in the form of men each had two hands. And so that meant there were four hands between them. When they left that city, there were exactly four people who needed to be dragged out to save them from the coming wrath. He knew before he sent them in how many he would find when he took them out. Abraham's intercession, from Abraham's point of view, was an attempt to argue to a different outcome than the one that God proposed. And yet, all he did was serve to confirm the very thing God intended to do in the first place. From Abraham's point of view, he must have felt as though he had influenced the outcome. From the testimony of the story front to back, though, it becomes clear his intercession was a part of the plan from the beginning which is why God gave opportunity for Abraham to even know about it in the first place. It was an invitation to join him in a work that was already planned. So this moment in Exodus 32 plays out in a very similar fashion. The Lord invites Moses in, informing him in advance of a plan that he has, giving him a chance to be an intercessor on behalf of Israel to save them from the destruction they deserve. Now, in this case, the Lord had no intention of destroying the nation. Nevertheless, though, he will punish the guilty for their sin against him. And when he brings those penalties, he will bring them according to his purposes. The covenant itself against the nation has been broken, and that requires penalties against the nation, and they will all come to pass. But in the meantime, what the Lord is doing is he's teaching Moses and the people and us a lesson about both the consequences of sin, but also the necessity of having an intercessor in the face of our sin. So when you hear God has changed his mind in verse 14, that statement is written from Moses's perspective. And from the perspective of a man, God appears to have been swayed or the plan appears to have changed. But this was not truly a change in God's plan. God orchestrated all of these circumstances so that this would go just as he wanted in the first place. And if this goes the way God always intended, it's not a change at all. But it is an apparent one from Moses' point of view. When you look at it from where God stood, everything went exactly according to plan. So through this encounter, the Lord accomplished three things. First, the Lord sets the expectation for Moses and for us that as the individual Jew goes, so goes the nation under the covenant. Remember, the Lord was prepared to wipe out all of Israel right now. Why? Because some of them sinned in these acts of debauchery. Not all of them, just some of them. And that is the natural result of a national covenant. The whole nation is in this together. It's all for one, one for all. If any in the nation sin under the terms of the agreement they all agreed to, then the entire nation is considered to have broken the covenant. So the entire nation must then suffer whatever penalties come. That's the nature of the old covenant, which we talked about in here at one point, I believe. That principle also becomes the basis for the Lord setting aside the entire nation outside the land, When he exiles them in a future day because of the sins of their leaders, because of their evil kings and because of the idolatry that had taken hold within the people. Not all Israel was participating in idolatry, but they all left the land. That's also why the entire nation lost the opportunity to receive Christ. When their leadership, the Pharisees rejected Christ when he came and offered the kingdom. Not every Jew had the chance to stand before Christ and decide for themselves whether they liked Christ as their Messiah or not. Doesn't matter. When the leadership rejected him, the whole nation was set outside the land and outside the opportunity for the gospel, at least for a time. You always have a believing remnant, but even the believing remnant also received those penalties. But this is also why the Bible says that the Lord will eventually save all Israel on earth in the last day. Because by this same covenant, God can treat the whole nation as one when the time comes to bring them back into the bond of the covenant upon Christ's second coming. So God will always treat this nation of people as one in a covenant because of what was done here at the mountain. So that's the first thing we learn. and We see it practiced for the first time right here. Secondly, the Lord prepares Moses to act as his representative. Now, we know he has been serving as the leader of the people up till now. He certainly was the representative to Egypt, etc. But here you see Moses now for the very first time. Choosing to take upon himself this act of intercession for the whole nation. As God's representative, Moses has to know both God's wrath and his intolerance for sin and the judgment that follows. And knowing that now, he can be prepared to act as judge himself in God's stead whenever there is an issue to decide in the camp. Yet Moses must also maintain a heart of compassion and understanding so that he can intercede properly for these people. That's a delicate balance. Judging. Condemning sin while maintaining compassion for the people. That's also a picture of Christ because he is the judge, but he is also the one who is called to prevent the destruction of his people. Then finally, the last thing we learn, the Lord uses Moses for that powerful picture of Christ in this exchange. Moses is the representative of God. He intercedes to save them from sin. And because of Moses, work, God will not bring wrath against the people. Do you notice that the people deserve the destruction? But because of the work of another done on their behalf, they are spared from the wrath of God. Moses is not just showing the picture of Jesus as intercessor. He's also showing the picture of the work of Christ that saves us from the wrath of God. It was the work of Moses in this case that saved the people. By the way, that picture works in another way as well. Jesus acts as both our intercessor, but he also acts as judge of all those who are guilty. Today, Jesus serves as our representative. He intercedes on our behalf. But in a future day... The father, we're told, assigns all judgment to the son so that the son will then bring judgment against all sin on earth. Moses fulfills both sides of this because he's not only interceding now, he's about to descend the mountain. And guess what he does when he gets to the base of the mountain? He puts on his judge hat for a while and deals with the sin of the camp. So now Moses is prepared to go down and deal with what he's going to find based on what God now has done in training him in this moment. Verses 15 through 19. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now, when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. In the movie, does he throw it at the calf? Yeah, Cecil the milk. amped it up a little bit there, didn't he? As we discussed earlier in the study, these tablets were written on both front and back, two copies. So we're talking about the full testimony on each tablet. You have two copies of it because it's two witnesses to stand in judgment according to the law. And each tablet was a complete set. They were written by the finger of God, we've been told in an earlier point. And we all know that angels were involved in the delivery of the law according to Paul. So it's likely that angels were attending to the preparation of these stones perhaps in some way and and in the delivery of them. But the handwriting was God's. By the way, the only other time in scripture that I know of where we hear of God's finger writing was when Jesus wrote in the dirt in John 8. Some have taken that connection to think that perhaps what Jesus wrote in the sand was the law. Again, I have my own theory on what he was actually writing. And if you want to learn, it's in the teaching online called The Adulterous Woman. And you can go listen later. As Moses descends, he meets back up with Joshua. And you remember this? Remember when he went up 40 days ago? He was accompanied by Joshua, left him about halfway up the mountain. And then he went the rest of the way. Well, poor Joshua, he's been having some alone time on the mountain for 40 days. Doing what? We don't know. But here he is ready for Moses when he comes back down. As they join back up, they're headed back down now to where the camp is. Of course, Joshua says, What is that? You know, sounds of war. What he probably meant was the sounds of men and women shrieking or crying out sounded like what happens when men and women are dying in distress. But Moses knew better because of what God told him. He says, I know it's not triumph or defeat that's going on down there, it's singing. So once Moses got within sight of the camp, then he finds the scene. And of course, if you've seen the movie, you have a picture of it. The movie doesn't do it justice. First, he saw the calf. Now, remember, this idol was intended to replace Moses and lead the people, supposedly. Ironically, the calf, therefore, stood for God. But in reality, what did it actually stand for? Satan. The idol they attributed as a picture of God was actually Satan in his influence, leading them into debauchery. And if you want greater proof of that, Baal, which is the most famous pagan god of the Canaanite nations, is a pagan god associated with Satan worship in the form of a bull. So it took the form of a bull and it is considered the closest idolatry symbol to Satan himself. It was the God who asked that they would sacrifice children and do other horrible things. So he sees the calf. Then he sees dancing. Now, dancing in itself is not a problem. There is a holy form of dancing represented in Scripture, which is praise to God. The problem is when dancing becomes an alcohol-fueled prelude to sexual activity. Then it's sin. A close second would be any type of dancing I would do in public. (laughs) Anyway, in response to what he saw, here's what he does. He reacts in anger, which is righteous anger. Paul mentions righteous anger as a non-sinful form of emotion. And this is one example of that. He throws the tablets down on the ground and they break. Now, at first thought, you might think, well, that's a pretty unkind thing for him to do. God went to the trouble to make these. Won't God be upset he did this? Well, I would say not only was God not upset, I think this is in keeping with God's purposes because in the way that this transpires, Moses inadvertently probably creates a perfect symbol of the moment. The people of Israel have broken the Ten Commandments. More importantly, they had broken the covenant that they had made with the Lord and the physical breaking of these tablets is such a perfect metaphor for what they had done spiritually. Moses then takes several steps in response to correct the situation. Look at verses 19 and 20. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses, his anger bird. And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountains. He took the calf, which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. So Moses breaks up the festivities, seizes the calf. Then he proceeds to destroy it. First, he burns it, then he grinds it into powder, then he scatters the powder on the water, then they drink it. Now, that description should raise a few questions, and it has historically. First, for example, how do you burn gold? It doesn't burn. It just melts. Why did Moses want them to drink the powder? Right? These are questions that stand out. Well, first, the construction of the calf was not... Pure gold, in all likelihood. Back in verse 4, the description of Aaron's actions as he created it, the words in Hebrew used to describe his activity suggest strongly carving. It's a word that's used traditionally for carving of wood, not working in metal. In Egypt, secondly, statues and idols of this type were commonly made by wood overlaid with gold. All the sarcophaguses of Egypt. Pharaohs are made that way. Their larger statues are made that way. It's not just because the gold would have been hard to work with on that scale, but it's just more cost effective. So it was wood with gold overlaid. That's probably what Aaron did here. It would have been a faster way, if nothing else. So if that's true, then the idol could be burned. And in the burning, all that wood is burned away, leaving only the gold behind, the slag gold that melted. Then he takes what's left of it, which at that point was only gold, and he grinds it into powder that would presumably have been done through additional laborers. Moses probably would have enlisted help to get that done quickly. Then you have a bunch of gold dust that's scattered on the water supply. Now, the water supply at this point, after 40 days at the base of the mountain or longer, actually, they've been there for several months at the base of the mountain. You would have found a lake formed by that continual flow of water from the rock. And if you were here when we did the video on the real Mount Sinai, you would have noticed that they have in the area there that large basin that looks like it held water at one point, and that's what it did. That makes sense. When you get two million people, you can't wait in line to get water out of a rock. The water would have dispensed itself into a larger surface area where then people could go up to like a lake and take water as they needed it. So as Moses takes this powder, he doesn't put it on cups and have people stand in line to drink it in some kind of mass punishment. He takes the gold and he just scatters it out on the lake so that as they drink, they can't help but drink the gold that's on the water. The point in that exercise was not punishment for Israel, nor, by the way, was there any atonement significance to it. The point was simply to destroy the idol so fully and then pollute it in such a way that it could never be reconstituted. Assuming the gold dust could have even been collected and melted down, after it went through the water and then the digestive tract of all of the Israelites, then it would have been unclean. Literally, it would have become poop. And so as an unclean thing, they couldn't touch it or use it any longer. This is not unprecedented. That same approach to destroying idols is repeated at other times in Israel's history. Josiah does a similar thing with the Asherah idol that he removed from the Jerusalem temple in 2 Kings chapter 23. After he takes it out, he grounds it to a powder. He scatters the dust of it over the graves of people. Remember, anything that touches a grave makes it unclean. The exact same thing going on here. If people have eaten it and passed it through their bodies, no one's going to want to make a god of that anymore. And that's the whole point. He wants there to be no chance that this god ever reappears among the camp. With the idol gone, Moses turns to Aaron for an explanation. Moses said to Aaron, What do these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron said, Do not let your anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself. They are prone to evil. For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. (laughs) Moses' questions and the way he sets this up as he starts the conversation. Even his question from the beginning suggests that he knew that Aaron had done something. He says, how did the people make you give in to such a bad idea. As if to say, I can't imagine any good reason why you would have voluntarily have gone along with this plan. Unless they put a knife to your head, I can't see how you would have participated in this, Aaron. So he asks, what did the people do to you that you would bring such a great sin upon them? And then this is followed by one of the best, and I mean by best, I mean worst, excuses in all the Bible. And in trying to defend himself, all Aaron does is proceed to convict himself even worse. He begins by saying, Don't be angry with me. Now, I got to tell you, folks, generally speaking, anytime you hear an excuse, begin with the phrase, don't be angry. You can be sure that before all is said and done, you'll have good reason to be angry. This is creative. Let's give him credit. He finds a way to take every step of the process and make himself look like he was doing the right thing and they were doing the wrong thing. He starts by saying, well, you know, these people, they're prone to evil. Well, yes, Aaron, isn't that the reason I left you in charge? And then he tells what happens. It's interesting here. We have Moses' own account of what really happened in the first part of this chapter. I mean, Moses is writing all of this, right? So Moses wrote what happened, and then he wrote what Aaron told him. And so we get the contrast. I'd like to think that if Aaron had realized Moses was going to be writing all of this down later, he might have thought to say something differently when he had the chance. Because it's just the contrast is so clear, right? So the difference there is readily apparent. So look at what he says. Aaron says first the men came to me asking me for God to go before them because he said they said you weren't coming back. Now, that's a true statement, right? But it certainly puts it on the people, which is where it began. And then he says, I replied by asking for them to give me all the gold out of their ears, which is true, and then I put it in the fire. Now, what's he implying? I was trying to prevent them. I was taking away all their gold and disposing of it so they couldn't have any hope to make this golden idol that they were trying to make. And then even though I did my best to stop the plan and take the gold away and throw it in the fire and put an end to it, lo and behold, a calf pops out. A calf just falls out of the fire. It's a miracle. So in everything he says, he does everything he can to remove his own culpability, right? to take himself out of the equation. Others asked. He tried to stop. In the end, it happened anyway. Moses expected Aaron to lead Israel away from these kinds of situations. It also reminds us that when the leaders are corrupt or incompetent, the people will always suffer under their charge. It doesn't require that a leader propose all the bad ideas, though. The bad leadership simply has to give opportunity for sin to do its work within the people. It's only worse if the leader has bad ideas, but it's not essential that the leader start with all the bad ideas. The sheep are given shepherds because it's better than allowing sheep to oversee themselves. As this scene demonstrates Hebrews, by the way, teaches us that God expects leaders to give account for the results of those under their charge. Hebrews 13:17. he says to the church, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. That scripture reminds us not only to obey and respect our leaders because they watch over our souls, But it also teaches that the role of the spiritual leader ultimately is to give account for us. Watching over our soul literally means shepherding our spiritual development. That's the role of a spiritual leader. We are to make that job easy because the easier it is for them to lead us, to shepherd us, the more opportunity we'll have to learn and to grow and develop in spiritual maturity. It just makes sense, right? That truth, though, is predicated on an assumption. One of those assumptions is that our leaders are, in fact, teachers, that they know and they respect the word of God, and that they communicate that word to us, that they are leading us in biblically appropriate ways. If the leaders aren't doing that, then the whole thing breaks down very quickly. Aaron demonstrating that. But in any case, we're supposed to make their jobs easier and not harder. If not, if we make that job hard for any reason, it says they will give an account. Now, what that word literally means in Greek is they will give a report. They will give a report of our souls. So it would seem, based on that scripture, that our spiritual leaders will have something to say about our compliance with their leadership in the day of our judgment. That's not to say that they will judge us, but maybe they get a few minutes on the witness stand to give their report. What are they going to say about us? We ought to think about that. Now, Aaron's grace in all of this, of course, was the fact that he says, I played no part in that calf coming together. It was magic. He threw the gold in the fire, magically out came the calf. It's as if to say God did it. It's as if to say the outcome was miraculous and therefore attributed to God. Does that remind us of anything out of the Genesis account that we compared this to on occasion? Where did Adam trace the cause of his sin back to? The woman that God gave him. As if to suggest this is your problem. And we see that same tendency here. The explanation is so absurd, Moses doesn't even dignify it with a response. Clearly, Aaron was party to the sin. And Moses left it at that. But then Moses gets the last word, remembering that he's the guy writing the narrative, right? History's written by the winners. This is what Moses says about Aaron's culpability. Verse 25 and onward, he says, Now, when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. There's his little parenthetical commentary. Verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about three thousand men of the people fell that day. So Moses moves now to make an example of those who led in the rebellion. In verse 25, we're told Moses saw the people out of control because Aaron allowed them to get that way. That phrase, out of control, is interesting in Hebrew. It's literally the word unfastened. Now, you might think he's speaking like we would say today, someone gets unhinged, kind of crazy. That's not the sense at all in Hebrew. This word means literally their clothes had come off. Unfastened, in this sense, refers to the lack of clothing. So what Moses witnessed was naked people. But that's not happening now. At this point in the text, in the narrative, we're not suggesting that this event is still transpiring. The rebellion had happened earlier, and Moses has already stopped it when he took care of the calf. What we should translate this to say now is, because Moses had seen the people out of control, it's referring back to what he had seen, not suggesting he's still witnessing it now, but because of what he had seen, now he takes action to judge those who were responsible. Remember from the earlier part of this chapter, I taught at the very beginning how the rebellion was instigated by a group of men within the camp, how it was a group that came to Aaron and said, make us a calf, and then he said, well, go to your wives, and so on. So there were these men who had led the nation into this sin. Aaron's fault was in not standing up to these guys, obviously. Maybe he was intimidated by them, because now we find out there were 3,000 of them altogether, Those are the ones Moses is now judging through this penalty of death. He begins by asking for men who would stand with him. Now, at first, it might be tempting to think that what he's saying is who is with me and with God, as opposed to who is with the idol. But that's not at all what's being said at this point. Uh, Moses is literally asking for volunteers who would be willing to perform the necessary justice against the men who committed this sin. He's looking for an impromptu executioner squad and he's asking men, who wants to do this for me? So he's asking for volunteers to execute justice in this moment. Now that's not something everyone's going to sign up for, which is why you only see the camp of Levi. This is his own people. Moses is a Levite, so he's asked and the Levites stand next to him, perhaps because he is their tribe member. They have come to support him. So he turns to Levites, telling them to go through the camp, and they end up killing, we're told, 3,000 men. Now, we're talking about a people group of almost 2 million, of which 600,000 are men. So clearly, we're not trying to eradicate all the sin in the camp. That would have been a much larger group of people. What we're looking to do is eradicate, for an example, those who led it in the camp, This is something you'll see consistently throughout the story of Israel in the desert. God is commonly seen taking the head off the the rebellion, so to speak. Because if he was to kill everyone in Israel who had a rebellious heart, there'd be none left. They were required, it says, to kill people they know. And the text indicates that they found themselves required to kill neighbors, friends, and even brothers in order to accomplish what was given to them. This is merciless punishment, right? Why does God ask for death in this case? You might ask. Simply because his word requires it. The penalty for sin under the law is death and particularly for the sin that they committed, idolatry. And the nation has yet to see God's justice in their own camp. This is the first time God is exacting justice within the camp of Israel since they left Egypt. So he sets the bar high and he sets the example. They need to understand the penalty that sin requires. They need to appreciate the seriousness of the covenant. And then forward from there, verses 29 through 35. Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that we may bestow a blessing upon you today. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. That last verse is simply a summary of what has happened. It is not some new incident of killing. The result of the Levites' obedience has now opened a door for potentially restoring relationship with the Lord. Here's why. The covenant's been broken. That cannot be undone. But still, the covenant endures because the covenant had terms associated with breaking. The covenant itself didn't dissolve because of sin. It simply invoked certain penalties because of sin. So the covenant endures and the nation is going to continue to walk with the Lord and to allow, therefore, a restored form of fellowship in the covenant. What must take place now is the price for that sin must be paid or an atonement must be made for it. One of the two must happen and then fellowship can be restored. And now in this case, when it concerns the 3000 men who are responsible for the calf, the Lord chooses to not make a substitute available. He doesn't give them that option. They must pay for that with their own lives. And so they are taken. That will be the price for those men's sin. But there is still the matter of the nation's sin and their relationship with the Lord because they've broken the terms of the covenant as a nation again. So how does the nation's sin get addressed under this covenant? Moses says, I have to go up to God and appeal to him and try to make atonement, try to seek forgiveness for us as a nation because of the breaking of this covenant. So the next day, he tells the people, I'm going back up. And then he reaches the Lord and he starts with, you know what, God, you were right. I found exactly what you said. Then he asks the Lord, would you forgive them for that sin under the covenant? And if you won't, Moses says, I will take condemnation in their place. He says, blot me out of the book, which refers to the book of life, which is the book recording the names of saints of those who are saved, those who have eternal life. So he's willing to receive the punishment that God was prepared to give the entire nation if that would change God's heart toward them. Now, what makes Moses want to do such a thing, to volunteer in this way? Well, it would seem he's embraced the role of representing the people, and he feels that burden, perhaps. Evidently, he believes his role of intercessor includes the possibility of taking their sin upon himself when necessary. But Moses makes a big mistake with this assumption. He's done well in intent, but he's way off track in point of fact. He assumes that his leadership role and his earnestness and his willingness to do this is enough to atone for sin. But it's not. He asks God to forgive the people under the terms of the covenant. But yet he makes no payment available to God for that. We did have the three thousand men die, but that was for their own sin. What about the sin of the nation? Moses is coming up there offering himself, but Moses is not qualified. He's just as sinful. He has nothing to offer in terms of a true atonement, a true replacement for the sin of the people. For he only has his own sin to pay for if he dies. He's not looking at the bigger picture, which is you can't take a sinful person and substitute them for a sinful person. It doesn't solve the problem. So he fails to understand what God expects here. And in the process of this, he does form another picture of Christ. He is not only the intercessor, of course. Christ is also the sacrifice in our place. He was willing to put himself in our place, though he had no sin of his own. But in Moses' case, Moses failed to understand that God is perfect in mercy and in justice. He can't overlook sin without a substitute, or else that would be injustice. But you can't accept an incomplete or unsatisfied substitute to pay for sin the standard of God was higher so the Lord rejects Moses' offer but we have to understand why he's doing this he's doing this because it's not an offer God can accept it doesn't solve the problem then he says whoever sinned against the Lord will not be found in the book of life this is a poetic way of saying those who have turned against me will pay the penalty of eternal death because of their sin this is a general truth of scripture by the way whoever has sinned against the lord will suffer the penalty of eternal death and by sin against the lord we mean someone who is not covered by the atoning work of christ for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god so there's no getting around that penalty the only way you have to get around that penalty is for someone else to pay that penalty and folks moses ain't going to be that person it has to be christ the one he's picturing this might also be an interesting comparison back to Genesis in which a woman is told through her she would bring a seed to crush Satan and she had the presumption to think that it would be one of her literal children who would be that Messiah, not understanding it was a promise that wasn't going to be realized until generations later. So she names her first son Cain, which means the man from God or man of God, and later finds out that he's going to be the kid. After all, so then she names her second son Vanity because she realized I was wrong about the first kid little aside there. Um, Moving on. The Lord says there is going to be a penalty for the nation. They will not be vindicated from the consequences. He will punish them in the day to come. Ultimately, that punishment will span generations culminating in the judgment of tribulation. Remember, the nation as a whole is under condemnation because they broke the covenant. The Lord said there will be a day of reckoning. Moses can't stop that. The death of the three thousand doesn't erase that. So the Lord continues to lead in Israel in the desert for a while, but that day of reckoning will come. And here's how it comes. That future day of reckoning is based on the sin of Israel against God under this covenant. It begins here, but it continues throughout their history. The history of Israel is nothing but a history of Israel violating this covenant, because that's all you can do in the face of what it requires. Moses then goes at the end of of Deuteronomy in his swan song he begins to recount through poetic language a prophetic story of what Israel is going to experience because they couldn't keep the covenant, starting with what happens in chapter 32, but but from other things that go on as well. We'll end tonight. Let me just read you select pieces of this. Pretty much all of chapter 32 of Deuteronomy is, is this poem. But let me just read you some select verses. It gives an overview of how the Lord intends to do what he's promised to do right now in chapter 32, which is bring a day of reckoning to Israel for their sin under the covenant. But it doesn't end with reckoning. Deuteronomy, and I'm just going to read pieces. I'll tell you where I'm going. Verses 5 through 6 of Deuteronomy 32. He says, They have acted corruptly toward him, toward God. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has bought you, he has made you and established you? Verse 16 and onward. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, for a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. Jump to verse 26. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will remove the memory of them from men. Had I not feared the provocation by the enemy, that their adversaries would misjudge, that they would say, our hand is triumphant and the Lord has not done all this. For they are a nation lacking in counsel and there is no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. Verse 35. Vengeance is mine and retribution in due time, their foot will slip for the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. And then finally, verse 43. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. So you see God's plan playing out. Beginning with the fact that they had him as he formed them in the desert. They violated what he gave them. They continued to forsake him. They had no faithfulness. They had no wisdom. They lacked counsel. He punishes them, brings misfortunes upon them, he says. Causes them to fade away to see their strength gone. But then in the end, because of his promises to his people. He renders vengeance on their adversaries and he atones for them and for their land. That is what he's alluding to even now as he speaks to Moses and says, don't worry, I've got a plan for how I'm going to deal with these people. It's a big plan. It takes a long time. So Adam suffered a short-term penalty and a long-term penalty for his failure in the garden. And now Israel is experiencing short-term penalties while also being placed under a long-term plan of penalty for their failures under this covenant. But even there is a wonderful piece of of wisdom or wonderful piece of God's compassion and love because of this covenant and their inability to keep it and therefore the punishments that followed, God was then just to withhold the gospel from the Jews while extending it to the Gentiles. But for a time only, at which point later he will come back to the Jews. The ability for him to open the gospel to you and I is directly related to a covenant that earlier set the terms by which he could be just in turning his back on his own people. And as they followed suit in doing as he expected, he can now respond in the way required, so that in Jesus' first coming, there would be an opportunity for Gentiles to receive what the Jews did not, what the Jews could not, for they were under judgment. But only until the time comes for them to receive their Messiah as God has planned. That's enough for one night, certainly. Let's go to prayer. Next week, we'll do chapters 33 and 34, followed the following week by the rest of Exodus. Father, thank you. Most of all, Father, thank you for the way your plan has made room available for Gentiles like me and others to join into the family of God. How true it is that, Father, you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. How true it is, Father, that you have laid before the foundations of the world the plan that made us a part of the family of God. And we stand here today, Father, In your power, by your grace, according to your will and because of what you have chosen to do in your word. And we ask you, Father, that with such a mighty and great plan of salvation, having already worked to our advantage, let us, Father, be a partner with you in some small way to advance it further in the days that remain. As what we learn changes who we are, let who we are change who others are. We ask you to give us that opportunity. And then we ask for the Lord to return quickly, Father. May we see him soon. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.